Blog Talk Radio. the number one podcast for plus-size women. I'm your host, Shanice Lewis. Today is Monday, December 21st, 2015. Stay connected with me in between shows on Instagram at Shanice Lewis, on Facebook at Shanice Lewis Show, and on Twitter at Shanice Show. Today's guest is Ashley Shackleford. She's the creator of Free Figure Revolution, a body positivity community organization. She is a contributing writer for for Harriet, and a community organizer at Black Action Now. She is currently working towards her MA in Africana Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, and Ashley has presented workshops and keynotes at universities, conferences, and events. She was nominated for the Feminist You Should Know Award in 2014 and a recognized feminist leader in her community. She recently wrote an article on BuzzFeed entitled, The Body Positivity Movement Looks a Lot Like White Feminism on Tess Holiday and Accountability, in which she accused the mainstream body positivity movement for being racist. Many are praising Ashley for her unapologetic commentary, while critics are saying she's being harsh and unfair. Today we're going to dig a little deeper into this conversation as Ashley gives us more clarity and insight about her purpose behind the article. Let's welcome Ashley to the show. Hi, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. Hi. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. You definitely made some waves this week with your article. It was everywhere. I had to talk to you after I read that article immediately. So tell me about some of the... Huh? It was really intense, the response to the article. (laughs) Right. So... We want to know more about you. So tell me about some of the work you are doing in the body positivity community. So um, in terms of the work that I'm currently doing, so to me the body positivity movement is so much broader than how we would think of it. So specifically right now my focus is um, my work that I'm specifically doing right now is based in the Black Lives Matter movement, which specifically focuses on the humanity and liberation for black folks worldwide. Um, And then in writing, like specifically, that's where I feel like my focus is, is providing a platform and really bringing to light a lot of issues that we don't get to have in everyday conversation. So really talking about um, issues of marginalization, specifically on race, sex, gender, and class, are really where I'm focusing my efforts right now in terms of writing and then in terms of doing direct action and community organizing. So when you talk about body positivity, you mean way more than just body image. Well, ultimately, um, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, that's relating to black bodies. So we're talking about the humanity of how black people are treated and our liberation overall um, through structural violence. And I think that that's really important to body positivity in terms of recognizing that we can't value bodies that we're able to see being displayed on screen, murdered and left and no justice whatsoever, unless we're going to talk about all those issues and really talk about how body positivity relates to a larger issue of structural violence against specific types of bodies. So even though like I could post about being body positive and what I'm wearing and how I'm walking down the street and I'm fat and proud, I still also have to be mindful of the fact that my blackness is a weapon within the society that I live in. So that relates directly to body positivity. Got it. Now, did you have reservations about publishing this BuzzFeed article because some of the negative consequences it could have? 
Definitely. Um, when you're going against the status quo, specifically of white supremacist I- like ideology, it can be life or death. So, I mean, ultimately, um, the responses that I got to this article, I did receive actual death threats. Um, because of the topics that I was talking about, anytime I talk about racism or issues alike, I'm always received with a lot of negative um, feedback that also just implements the same violence I was addressing in the first place. Um, but I do feel like there were a lot of people who were kind of um, in between with their feelings. So it wasn't necessarily um, like such direct violence, but more so just trying to figure out where I was coming from and even how to address these issues, because I think that the article really opened up a lot of different conversations. So it was a lot of different responses that I was getting, specifically people wanting to know how the body positivity can relate to other facets of identity, such as disability and class, and how does that work through that structural violence and how we see people within this movement. Now, did I hear you correctly? You said you received death threats from this article? I did. So I that happens actually all the time for most of the articles that I do write um, because I am talking about such sensitive topics because when we do talk about oppression and privilege, um, people are very apprehensive to those topics. And if they weren't apprehensive, then we wouldn't be living in the violent state that we currently are. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, so people sent was I've received a death threat on my Tumblr when I posted my article, and then I also received some very negative, like, you know, you're going to really regret this type of messages on my Facebook. So, you know, it's just, it's really, it comes with the job of talking about oppression. <laughs> wow. So in regards to your article, you specifically use the term body positive community. Now, is that the same thing as the plus-size community or the plus industry? Because I feel the body positivity refers to all sizes. However, the bulk of the women that you criticized in your article was specifically plus-size women. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it's really actually hard to um, decipher between them because it's like when you think of body positivity, like earlier when I was talking about Black Lives Matter, a lot of people don't relate that, right? Um, but I would mm-hmm. say that body positivity, um, that you can't really separate them. Like, body positivity shouldn't be centered in thinness, yet it is. And even in the plus-size community, um, with body positivity being the purpose of having that community, correct, um, we still see that there is a hierarchy to worthiness, um, and that is correlated with how how certain people get that, how people can be in the forefront and also how people are able to navigate those communities safely and talk about what they need to. So, I mean, when we talk about Mm -hmm. the plus size industry though, I think that we're speaking to more of a capitalistic front of how we are selling to plus size bodies. So, I mean, I can see how Mm -hmm. that could get mixed up, but they actually all correlate together for what I was referring to. Now, one of the, uh, People were telling me with feedback uh, when they were criticizing you, they never heard of you, and they wanted to know where you come from with your, you know, opinionated article. So in the past, you pursued being a plus-size model as well as a plus-size fashion blogger. So are you just some disgruntled plus model who tried to submit to the magazines you uh, criticized and got rejected? Are you bitter? about not excelling in the plus industry? Um, That's actually kind of really funny to me. Um, So, no, I mean, I'm just cute and trying to survive. Um, I never actually pursued a modeling career. Um, I did pursue fashion blogging, though. Um, And at that time when I first found body positivity and fat acceptance, um, like as a community online, I specifically found it on Tumblr, and it changed my life. It totally did. So I will never turn my back on this community because I'm within it. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be challenging um, this community to hold ourselves to a higher standard, to who we regard, to how we navigate this community and who we allow to navigate it safely. And um, ultimately, when I was pursuing a fashion blogging career, I never actually had contact with any of the people that I mentioned in my article whatsoever. Um, I'm not disgruntled or bitter <laughs> because this is not where I don't want to be in fashion. Um, but I do want to talk about the liberation of all plus size and fat bodies, however you identify. And I think that that's really where I'm standing with my article and where my politics lie. 
So have you had any interactions with any of the women you wrote about in your article that helped form your opinion of them? Absolutely not. I've actually never met any of the people that I listed in my article at all. So you just follow them online, and that's how you... Yeah, so I mean, so I've been engaged in the community for a while. So of course, I'm abreast on a lot of issues. And of course, um, because specifically, we talk a lot about fashion, like that seems to be like a huge um, component to the industry that we're talking about and to the movement. Because we like that's seemingly like a very evident um, lack of representation that we have lack of access to resources that we need for plus size bodies. But so I do follow fashion within this plus size community since that is really the forefront. So looking at bloggers, looking at what um, plus size stores are available now. So even with um, it's like I follow Jessica Kane um, since her blog um, that she had. And then when she evolved with Scorch magazine and then also with her new store that she posted on my um, article actually for society plus, I believe it is. So that was like the first mm-hmm. time I was hearing that she had like a new store too. So, I mean, like, of course I'm following these blogs and keeping up with the community so that I can also know what changes are going on in the community. Um, what awesome is going on in the community, who is really doing this work. Um, and also like mm-hmm. how I can get access to fashion myself, even though I don't want to work in fashion, I still need to dress my body. So, of course, I'm still a part of this community in that way. So you specifically mentioned four plus-size magazines in your article, Plus Model Magazine, Scorch Magazine, Volup 2, and Mode. Now, two of the magazines I've had the honor of being on the cover of, Plus Model Magazine and Scorch, and all of the magazines always have women of color featured some way in every issue. Um, I know specifically with Plus Model Magazine, they have an all-black issue and an all-Latino issue that they put out this year that exclusively featured women of color. So what more do you want to see? That's a great question. So um, in terms of that, it's just it's not enough to put us on covers. To be honest, diversity is a hot commodity right now, so ultimately – it's not enough to just show and tell. We need to be included in the decision-making and the productivity of this industry and movement. And we also need to be at the forefront. We need to be getting paid at the same rate as our white counterparts, and we also need to just be incorporated in a way that shows that we're humanizing marginalized groups, especially when it comes to black and brown folks that need to be a part of this community more so, um, and in terms of navigating that. So that's really important. So you feel there isn't, Uh, a woman of color that is equivalent to the women that you mentioned? So not a visible woman of color um, in the sense that you are oppressed by color. But when we address these issues, I think it's really important. So it's like easy to say that, you know, to make an analogy, it's easy to say that when we see Oprah, we think, wow, you know, all black people made it. But ultimately one Oprah doesn't speak for the millions of black people that are living impoverished. So when we see diversity in terms of a show and tell and we're on the cover, you know, are we a part of this creativity? Like, are we a part of the behind the scenes and making sure these models are, we're not just one issue that we're always in the room that we're always making a part of making these decisions is our humanity always in that space. Or is it just a chosen point to center us at once a month, a year? Like, so ultimately, you know, I'm not looking for a Black History Month of a magazine. Like, you know what I mean? Like, to make an analogy. Like, I think ultimately Mm -hmm. what we need is we need power players that are people who represent us in those spaces, making those decisions and challenging the overwhelming whiteness that is within this community and that is centered within this industry. So how do these magazines, in your opinion, marginalize women of color if they are featuring them constantly? I know you're saying, you know, the people in power need to be more colorful, but you don't think the magazine still has the ability to uplift all women? So with that, I mean, it's it's also more than just race. Um, we need people who are not only visibly, it doesn't necessarily have to be a a woman of color. It needs to be a person of color. Um, It would be great to see gender minorities within those roles, but that also includes trans folks, 
gender nonconforming folks. It includes queer folks. It includes disabled folks. So, I mean, again, we're looking at a lot of different forms of power and the people who are sitting at the table making these decisions. So it's more than just whiteness. Um, it's more than just white passingness. And I think ultimately with that, you know, it really shouldn't be about more so like showing receipts for what's not there. If there was diversity implemented, um, you know, for example, I know Jessica responded to my article and she wouldn't have responded the way that she did um, in her commentary if she would have been more willing to actually listen to a black woman myself talking about these issues of racism and diversity. So ultimately, I mean, what does that really say if you're not going to listen to the people you're apparently championing for, like if you're not willing to actually listen so what does that say when you just put us on the cover but you don't want to listen to us? Now, speaking of the magazines that you talked about, one of them was Mode. Mode has been defunct for years, since 2001. So why were they even mentioned in the article? Because they're kind of um, irrelevant for today. Yeah, they definitely are relevant. <laughs> Great question, though, because I know a lot of people are like, what is Mode? But I'm like, um, it's actually one of the first plus-size magazines, and it was – you know, led and forerun by a white person, so a white woman. So when we're looking at that, it's really just a long-standing history of how white women in power, um, you know, have really centered their privilege access and centering their whiteness within their roles and how that leads to disseminating more overwhelming whiteness within that magazine. So really ultimately, like, because I know that you had asked this earlier, it's more so like, you know, if these white women or white passing women are leading these magazines, does that mean that there could never be real true diversity? And I think in some ways, yeah, there really could never be unless you're willing to challenge that role and to give those leading spots or the or you're willing to give someone a counterpart role to your role, that is going to be a marginalized person, especially when we talk about people of color. If you don't have someone who is being paid like you leading and making these decisions to make sure that diversity is implemented at all fronts, then it's really not going to change anything. Now, when you say that these women in the article are racist, that's a heavy word. So what are you referring to when you say racism in the context of this article? Because I assume you aren't talking about they're members of the KKK are burning crosses and want to harm people of color. So what do you mean when you say racism? So racism goes beyond, like, these very explicit ideas of what we think is racism. So I don't need a white person to call me the N-word to know that you're racist. Um, racism, the most violent forms of racism are implicit. So racism is telling me that I hate white people because I talked about the marginalization of people of color within the body positivity movement. Because that's a de it's a derailment tactic, and it's also, or I'm sorry, it's a derailment tactic. And I feel like ultimately it's really about silencing me silencing someone of color, especially a black woman, talking about these issues is violence. That's racism. And racism is also telling me that I'm unintelligent because I talked about these issues or about um, what people in power don't want to talk about. Racism is telling me to be quiet until white people say I'm allowed to speak up. And ultimately, that's not how <laughs> pushing back against oppression works. It doesn't work on the timetables or the decisions of white people, especially people in power. So that is racism. These forms that we're talking about, this lack of, because even using this word diversity, it's such a shallow term. Like anybody can say diversity. We even saw that when, um, you know, just to bring up a, a local um, news incident was with Ms. U, with the students actually um, pushing back against these racist systems within their institution. So, I mean, you have black students in the school, yet they don't feel comfortable. So what does that say about the black and brown people that are in this industry but aren't able to say anything because they're not allowed to. Because once they do, it means it's threatening their career. It means it's threatening their access and their paycheck because now they've upset someone who's in power who, you know, lo and behold, is white. So what does that really say when we're not allowed to talk about these issues without risking everything to do it? Now, I got to tell you, this was a great article for me, uh, a great part of the article for me when you call some of the uh, women racist because I have – relationships with some of them and you know some of them have been to my house and spent the night some of them we've shared hotel rooms at events and maybe I'm biased but you know would someone racist want to come spend the night at a black person's house definitely I mean some of the most racist people I know are people who say they love me um 
it's just really it's it's so much more than that and i feel like in order to understand how deep racism is um it, it hurts to like think about the people that you're close to like even people that you're spending time with Janice, like being racist or have that capability of being racist we think that it's not to say that racism isn't so pervasive and violent that you know it has to be worn on your sleeve um but it is to say that you know if we start recognizing um if we start recognizing these levels of how power dominance privilege and oppression work then we would recognize that anybody who is of privilege that means recognizing that all white folks have the capability of being racist like instead of just saying we have to wait for you to show us that you're racist it's just honestly the way that privilege works the way that white supremacy works there is no way to say that you are escapable of that because you were taught to be that way that's how society is designed it's designed for us to not care about people of color so you can't be a part of a system where you have this privilege and not name the violence behind that privilege okay so another area where you were getting criticized is because some of the women that you uh talked about in the article being racism racist were women of color and they were Latina. So who do you consider to be a woman of color? Because, uh, you know, some people are confused about some of the people you were talking about. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, who was specifically Latina in the article? Well, I know uh, Madeline Jones is Puerto Rican, so I consider her a woman of color. Yeah, no, definitely. So... I mean, being Puerto Rican doesn't actually necessarily mean that you're a woman of color, but I mean, if she is a woman of color and that's like her actual racial identity, um, then I mean, that's, you know, that's great. I'm glad that we're recognizing that she is a woman of color. But also I said in my article that people were white or white passing because I've never had one-on-one conversations with these people. So I can never assume to know your race, but I can definitely see how you're read. So I asked numerous people if they felt like, you know, the people I named were readable as people of color. None of these people read as being oppressed by color. It doesn't mean that you're not a person of color, though. So in terms of that, um, you know, being a woman of color is anyone who's non-white. So that means that, you know, Madeline or Maddie, um, I'm not sure because some people refer to her differently, um, is, you know, a woman of color. I'm not taking that away from her whatsoever, but it is just to say that if you read as white, then you're being treated like you're white. So you're navigating the world in white spaces with a white face, and that makes a huge difference in how the privilege works for you. Okay, and I guess that's something that could be debatable because some people don't feel she looks white and she has some ethnic characteristics. So that's something, you know, I guess it just depends on your opinion. Um, no, definitely agree. That happens all the time. Like, I mean, honestly, to be real, like, you know, even as, like, a very, like, light-skinned black woman, like, I feel like I'm I'm constantly, like, telling people that, you know, I'm 100% black, but people always want to ask me, like, what are you? What are you mixed with? And I feel like that's a privilege. Right. I have to recognize that as a racially ambiguous black person that not when I'm traveling the world, when I'm navigating the world, people don't always read me as, as black. So that means right. that I have a lot of privilege over other people who may be darker skinned or maybe have different phenotypes than me. So, you know, in terms of you mentioned a lot about white passing and in saying that they are privileged and can possibly be, racist in this community so who exactly are you championing for is it only dark-skinned women of color or is it specifically african-americans because it can get kind of confusing when you say the white passing and they're women of color too you know definitely um great question so i champion for all marginalized people um and i mean that would include um madeline jones like because you're a woman of color but it also means that it doesn't mean that you don't have privilege in how you navigate your oppression. So, I mean, ultimately, I'm championing for everybody, but I also recognize the privileges within oppression. Like, it doesn't – everybody has privilege, everybody has oppression um, in some way, shape, or form. So, in recognizing that, like, you know, I mentioned earlier having light skin privilege. Like, I deal with that all the time, um, but it doesn't not make me – um, a participant in violence against darker skinned people, not purposely, but because that's what I represent. Because lighter 
light-skinned people are a privilege in a lot of ways in how we're humanized and how we navigate the world. And I think that that's really important to recognize in how we are, like, in being women of color. We still have to recognize how we have privilege over other people. So that's what I would say. So some of the women um, in your article, um, they might be white passing or white, but some of them are dating and married to black men or men of color and have biracial children. So can that exclude them from being racist? So, um, no, because, you know, slave owners raped and enslaved black people constantly. That doesn't actually mean anything. So, I mean, when we look at that, that has a long history of how we look at interracial couples now. So it's just like, you know, a white person, I could be dating a white person right now, and it wouldn't make them not, you know, it wouldn't make them not culpable of being racist towards me. So, you know, being able to date um, or even have black children um, does not excuse you of your possibility of being racist or anti-black. And, you know, a lot of people would argue that racism and anti-blackness are actually two separate entities because anti-blackness is very specific and pervasive in different ways, um, especially when we're looking at white supremacy as a whole. Now, see, when you say white supremacy, I think of KKK, I think of skinheads, and I think that's why this was so um, offensive to some people because I guess there could be different levels to racism, and I guess when you say the word, we always think the worst. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that that's actually how, like, white supremacy, like, has us navigating this world where we feel like we keep racism so, at like, far at bay that you feel like, no, like, someone really has to call me the N-word or really try to, like, purposely kill me because I'm black, like, to tell me that they're racist. But the most racist forms are the, the most silent. Like, it's someone trying to touch your hair and not ask for your consent or even think that that's weird to try to reach out to touch somebody else's hair. So, I mean, that is like such a, an everyday form of violence that we see all the time. So when I'm saying white supremacy, I'm actually talking about a larger power system that, you know, really speaks to all these different facets of violence and oppression. That includes racism, ableism, classism, capitalism, it includes queerphobia, it includes transphobia. All of those things are incorporated within white supremacist structure. But also it speaks to individualistic characteristics of inhabiting white supremacist forms. And that includes being racist and the ways of not having someone who is a person of color sitting at the table making decisions for this industry. That also includes, you know, silencing black and brown women or just black and brown gender minorities for speaking out against these issues. Um, so outwardly, like with my article, immediately I was met with silencing tactics, derailment tactics, making this seem like I'm really out to just get all white people and then specifically out to get tests. And so I feel like that really speaks to the fact that nobody wants to talk about racism unless it's on a dominant, um, which really just speaks to like having white people determine how we talk about these issues. And that is just even more racist. Now, you mentioned tests. So that was the the second part of the article was specifically about Tess Holiday, and while it's understood you were trying to use Tess as the example of privilege, some people felt you just kept going on and on and on about her, which discredited the article because it seemed like you had something personal against her. You know, definitely. Um, so it would seem that way to people who are invested as tests, like being the leader and icon of the body positivity community currently. And I mean, I would be upset too in reading the article and not being aware of how Tess was a clear example of how this community will protect white womanhood over threatening the status quo of whiteness within the movement. But no, I don't have anything personal against Tess because I don't even know Tess. I don't, you know, care to seek out a relationship with Tess. I don't expect that we will ever talk. But in recognizing that in pop culture and even within smaller movements such as the plus size community, um, we have to recognize that people who are being led as our leaders and um, icons and role models within this movement are always up for critique because ultimately when a media-ordained leader is doing something and being accused of theft, 
then we need to be talking about it. We need to talk about what this means. We also need to talk about what power position Tess holds within this community when she's white, cisgender. Um, you know, she I'm not sure how she identifies sexually, but, you know, seemingly heteronormative and how that plays into our ideas of body positivity and who's really worthy of having access to body positivity or self-love and acceptance. Now, one of the things that you said in the article uh, when speaking specifically about Tess was that she should give up um, some of her jobs to women of color. Now, many thought that was a very unreasonable and ridiculous statement to make because everybody's trying to make a living. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's funny because most folks with privilege think that unlearning privilege is just a mindset, but it requires structural change, and that includes who we center and, like, who specifically given opportunities within popular culture and within body positivity. So if Tess is unwilling to give up opportunities to marginalized groups, for example, like women of color, gender nonconforming folks, disabled folks, I mean, then she'll continue to be a participant within her privilege and within social positioning that represents dominance and power over those marginalized groups. Um, you know, because everyone's trying to make a living, but it's interesting how the first response um, to Tess giving up a job to, like, women of color is so ludicrous to them, but ultimately has never crossed anybody's mind that because Tess has been accused of theft that she's actually been taking from people who are making a living, too. So, Well, but just really because you're used to success doesn't mean you have a lot of money in your bank account, and she does have a child and that she has to take care of, so she needs money. I mean, that's understandable, but also whiteness allows you access to more capital in the first place. So it's like, so people of color are struggling every day, um, especially like when you look at the pricing. So say, for example, if I wanted to go back into blogging, if I wanted to go back into fashion blogging as a plus size woman of color, like the amount of money I would have to spend on clothes just to be able to be in the forefront to have people look at me would cost me considerably. But I'm literally living poor, impoverished as a college student just trying to survive. I don't have a child, but I'm also black, queer, and trying to navigate a society that is trying to seek to destroy me at all given terms. Then when I write articles like this, it actually limits how much access I have to more capital because now I've challenged a status quo that allows for other people to make money. So now I'm challenging other people's money, but now I still can't get money because I told the truth. So what does that say about everybody else that has to navigate this community? And then we can't even talk about our real issues or our humanity without losing money. So even though Tess has a kid, there's a lot of people who had kids that ordered shirts. There's a lot of people who have kids and want to be bloggers. There's a lot of people who are people of color who don't have access to stable jobs. There are people of color out here that are trying to do the same work that Tess is doing but don't have access to do it because they're not white, because they don't already have capital to start with. And I think that that really speaks to a lot because even Tess has actually spoken about um, her finances in articles in defense of, like, how she's been navigating um, – you know, being able to move out of her port, like when she was more, um, when she didn't have a lot of money, because I definitely did try to follow her career too, because it was great when she got signed to a major agency. I think that was a great accomplishment. It's just not enough. So even in reading her articles, she's talking about how much money that she's making. So it's really not enough to say that somehow it's going to hurt her to offer an opportunity to someone who doesn't get the opportunity. So what does that say about what type of diversity we're trying to implement if you don't actually want to do anything about it, if it means that you have to take money out of your pocket? And that actually would just play right back into the system. Like if you're not going to take, like if you're not going to take, like say, for example, when we talked about the, the magazine owners, if you're not willing to invest in women of color to the point that they can sit at the table with you, then you're not willing to actually implement diversity. So according to my resources, Tess has refunded everyone's money back that bought a T-shirt and didn't receive it. That was one of your uh, critiques about Tess. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but however, it seems she's trying to make amends. So regardless of her race, shouldn't she be given a second chance to redeem herself? So, I mean, so two things. Um, Did you read the Refinery29 article that she was interviewed in? No, not entirely, not entirely, no. 
Okay, so she offered up a missing order form within the article. So, I mean, if all the orders were taken care of, then you wouldn't have put the form in the article. Um, also, a lot of people actually contacted me after my article that I wrote, um, letting mm-hmm. me know that they still hadn't received their refund. So there are actually still a lot of people who are waiting for their refund. So ultimately, the orders actually aren't taken care of. And it's really not about tests. Like, and we can't actually move away from her race, though. So I know that you said regardless of her race, shouldn't she be given a second chance? I said that in my mm-hmm. article that whiteness is always afforded the benefit of the doubt. You're always still going to be seen innocent, even if she really did um, meticulously deceive people to take money from them. It it would still be okay because she's still a white woman. So it's just like, oh, you made a mistake. We'll hug you through it. But if this was a woman of color, like, she would never have access to anything in this industry again. She would never get a job again. She literally would have been well, paraded around. You know, like, I kind of believe that, I mean, I do think Tess should be able to, you know, redeem herself. But I do agree that um, if it's a woman of color and she messes up, she'll be ghetto, ratchet, uh, you know, wouldn't be uh, embraced as well. I do agree with you on that. Yeah, because, I mean, and I'm sure, like, you know, even in your own personal experience that it's just like that, you know, you have to be twice as good to have half of what a privileged group has, and that speaks to whiteness, like, as navigating the world as women of color, especially being black. So ultimately, like, if we took money, we would just be seen as, wow, like, we're just another precious who's, like, stealing a bucket of chicken. Like, but Tess would never be seen that way. She would never be seen as a precious because her body doesn't represent trauma. Her body doesn't represent poorness. That's what blackness represents. And that's what we really need to be challenging because ultimately my article isn't about, you know, tearing Tess down. It's about recognizing that this entire community is willing to hold Tess um, through her her poor decision-making rather than actually, like, addressing how her whiteness is protecting her and no one wants to speak out against it. So in what way do you want to see Tess held accountable for her actions that has not yet happened? Um, I think Tess should just make a public apology. I mean, before I wrote my article, you know, I did my research. I didn't see that she made an actual public apology saying that she's sorry and that she actually, um, outside of the article with Refinery29, I didn't see any specific posts that Tess had made about this situation um, publicly, really acknowledging her behavior and what happened um, to make sure that people actually have access to finding ways to get in contact to get their refund. And also just, you know, saying sorry, actually really feeling sorry for the fact that there were people invested in her in her navigation of the body positivity community, in her movement, and they really wanted to support her, you know, especially because also the proceeds were going to charity. So this was really more than just being invested in tests. This was really investing investing in a larger cause of domestic violence. So ultimately, like, addressing how sorry you are, I think, is the first step. But um, But also just, you know, I really feel like it's not really about – what Tess should do at this point because, you know, what Tess does at this point really doesn't matter um, because Tess is going to be just fine. I'm looking at this industry and this community to hold Tess accountable because it really just speaks to what you're willing to risk when it comes to whiteness and social capital. So are you willing to call Tess out um, as an industry leader, as like, you know, a a famous um, plus-size blogger and say that this isn't right, that some people in our community, that there are fat folks who have been – taken from and didn't receive a shirt, didn't receive a refund, didn't receive an apology. Are we going to talk about that? Are we going to talk about how that speaks to the larger issues of not having, like not being able to hold people of color within this community? So you wrote this article and it got shared, I think over a thousand times. I'm just estimating it might be more than that. So a lot of people saw this article and you might have given exposure to some of the white women that you are criticizing. So why didn't you use your platform and your voice to uplift and give exposure to women of color in the industry that are doing positive things instead? That's a great question. Actually, surprisingly, um, anytime I write about, like, really calling people out, that's always the question that's asked is why not um, uplift whatever group is not being centered? Um, But why can't we do both? 
Well, I really feel like what is the issue in doing both? I think realistically it's about hurt feelings and white tears, and I feel like that really is just speaking to coddling a respectability politic of addressing these issues, which doesn't actually address them. And I feel like there are some people who have to navigate this community and this sphere in that way to survive, and that's perfectly fine. I'm sure there are so many um, women of color that are out there that are either bloggers, models, or just participants within this industry that feel like they can't speak out without losing what they have and doing what they love. And I feel like that is okay, because if you need to do that to survive, that is okay. It's still violent, but it's okay. But as somebody who writes about this and and doesn't have anything to lose within this community besides just gaining liberation for my fat body as a black Um, fat femme just trying to survive, I think I'm just willing to really go out there and say that people need to be called out, people need to be loved. And I feel like I'm willing to do both. I feel like I refuse to be silent in the face of oppression, and I feel like people need to be called out, people need to be uplifted. But the fact that we can only say words like diversity and inclusion and not acknowledge the violence that created the need for these words is telling. Well, one of the things you mentioned in our discussion is how you want a woman of color to be, you know, a leader equivalent to some of these people that um, we've talked about. Now, some critics are are saying there are women of color that are equivalent to these women um, that are in the plus community, and there are, you know, African-American and Afro-Latina leaders that you ignored their accomplishments and diminishing saying that they're not equivalent. I'm not saying that at all. Um, Nowhere in my article did I mention what we're doing for ourselves or what role that we're um, playing that benefits this overall idea of diversity. Um, Because a lot of people are like, you forgot all these people. And it's just like, I actually didn't. I specifically wanted to focus focus on calling out the industry that is not holding us. So, and that includes really addressing the most, like, pivotal people that we see in power um, that seem to hold a lot of cards. They're not the only people who have power, though. So I never explicitly said that. There are so many different blogs, um, leaders within this community that should totally be addressed. I mean, one of my favorite people in the world is um, Sonia Renee Taylor, who runs the Bodies on Apology. Like, she's amazing. She's amazing what she does in the in the platform that she's building, and it's a platform that we need. Um, and she's leading that. Um, also, like, great writers who are also fat and black and out there really putting themselves out there, like Cortez, um, who is an amazing writer on The Body is Not an Apology. Like, there are plenty of people that I see doing this work, but it doesn't mean that in this article that, you know, because I didn't specifically mention anybody, that I was actually trying to forget the folks that are actually doing this work. Um, I was really trying to really center on who we need to be holding accountable right now. Um, I think that a lot of people write articles on blogs, magazines, and people that we need to be uplifting, but this article was leaning towards the accountability piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what are some action items that listeners can do to promote racial diversity in the body positivity and plus communities? Because after you criticize someone, and say in saying they're not doing something right, then I think we need to say, you know, specifically what what should they be doing that they're not doing? Because like a lot of people read your article and are just clueless as to what you want. What more could they do? You know, definitely. Um, so great question. I think the first thing that people can do um, in terms of especially um, recognizing racial diversity um, is when you are in a position of privilege or what like and whiteness um, that you should listen. Listening is the the key. And I know it seems like such a shallow action plan, but it's not. It's actually the most important thing that you can do is listen. Um, and it means that fully, attentively listening. Um, for example, I know I mentioned this earlier, and it's really not about dragging Jessica, but it really is about recognizing that Jessica was like a key component in recognizing that this conversation needs to happen because her commentary was completely um, was completely inappropriate. Um, Jessica commented on my post with you know, kind of very racist commentary, specifically targeting how I address these issues. And it tells me that the people who are so dedicated to diversity are the most mad about my article. 
Um, so, you know, what does that say when, like, what does that say about how you really think diversity is or how it's implemented? Oppression is not kind. Oppression is violence. So our response as marginalized people should not have to be in the terms of those in power. Um, and then ultimately another thing that you can do as an actionable item is to pay people of color for our labor and our work at the same rate that you pay white people um, and actually value our opinion more when it comes to diversity because we're the ones that need it. Diversity is not for white people in the sense of why it's actually implemented, um, but it's for white people as a silencing tactic. So have people of, I'm sorry, have people of color in power positions um, of your organizations or magazines um, and then create diversity initiatives within all forums, like, of this community and the body positivity movement that are led by people of color and that are paid to do this work because we need to be paid to tell you what we need. Um, it's not our job as oppressed people to tell our oppressors what we need you to do to fix this violence, but if we have to tell you, then you need to pay us, and you need to listen, and then you need to do it without question. And if those things are not done, then ultimately you're not invested in this, and it's hard. Like, there's no nice way to have a conversation about racism. There's no easy way to have a conversation about racism. But it's really not our place as marginalized people to tell, you know, people in power, this is what you need to do. And then you just listen to us and take our labor of telling you, take our lived violence, and and you just take it and plagiarize it, and then take what you we said, and then you do it, but you don't pay us for it. That's not how that works. You need to pay us to be in these positions to tell you what we need. So create a team. I'm sure that this article that I wrote is going to instigate so many conversations about diversity. Um, even if it comes to the expense of hating me, it's going to be interesting to see how many people are going to use my labor to have deeper conversations and to create initiatives around their own organizations. And suddenly it's going to seem like they did it on their own, but it really just came from the fact that this article really just dragged a lot of people that needed to be dragged because this is about holding everybody accountable. This is not about, this is personal. I know you personally. This is about a larger issue of racism. And if we're not addressing it in a way that is actually actionable, then nobody's actually dedicated to unpacking it. Well, I know after some people listen to this interview, they are going to say you are militant and you just, you know, putting down white people for no reason. What would you say to that? You know, I would say, you know, to people who think I hate white people, I would ask them, and most of the time it's going to be people who are white who are saying that, I would ask you, do you love black people? Do you love black people? Do you love black people um, when we're on the cover of your magazine? Do you like black people when we talk out loud and we tell you what we need? Because then the question is, is if you don't love us when we talk out loud and it's something you don't like, then you don't care about us. You don't love us. You don't care about our humanity. So, I mean, I feel like ultimately that's all I'm talking about is really our humanity. And I think that if you're not willing to have these conversations, if you're not willing to listen, that's really – it says more about you than it says about me. And I'm actually really okay with being seen as militant because, you know, that's how I am in my politics. It's how I have to be to survive, to navigate a world that is really not created for me, not created for you. It's not created for a lot of people who are marginalized in this community, and it's really important that we recognize that. So in order to change um, and to really, like, build a community versus, you know, just kind of like a group of people that navigate – this small world together, like to actually build community, we have to have these conversations. And it has to include people like me who are, you know, saying the hard truth in a way that, you know, doesn't have a chaser. Like we need to have these conversations with people who are willing to really be able to say what they want. And like I said earlier, I know there's plenty of people out here who are navigating these spaces and are not allowed to speak out without losing everything that they have. And that is violence the fact that people can't talk about their own humanity without losing job opportunities. So we really just need to keep talking. So, Ashley, what is next for you? Do you have any more explosive articles coming out? Or that's it for a while? <laughs> um, to be honest, um, yeah, like I feel like <laughs> coming up soon, I know I'm going to have like a lot more articles um, actually about these very topics, especially diversity in the plus-size community. So you can look out for them. Um, I actually have a personal website, blackfatfem.com. Um, so you can definitely go there and see the articles that I posted. Um, there's a lot of people that I'm connected to on my own network um, that know me and that can, like, generally pass around the articles that I write. Um, and then I always post on my Instagram and my Facebook, too. So 
you know, people can always be in touch. Um, so then that way we can continue to have these conversations, even if it is at the expense of, you know, me seemingly being militant. <laughs> well, I definitely enjoyed this conversation with you. I saw you post on your Facebook, You let's see how this conversation goes. But I think it was a good educational conversation. I agree. No, honestly, um, because you never know. So it definitely was never any shade to you, boo. Like, we all good. Like, I just, you know, you never know how things are going to go when you're talking about really serious issues like this. So I really appreciate you having me on your show and reaching out to me. It really means a lot. Um, And, you know, I see you doing your thing, too. So I just want you to know, like, you've been seen, and I support you. So. Well, thank you so much. Well, I definitely think you have started a, a conversation that needs to be had, and we'll see how people in the industry take note. So uh, continue success. Tell us your website one more time. It's blackfatfem.com. It's black, fat, and then fem is S-E-M-M-E.com. And you're not on Twitter, right? I'm not. I mean, I am, but I'm not. I mean, when I tell you I don't rock with Twitter, but <laughs> it's asking. So what's the best social network to talk to you on? Facebook. That I know it's so weird, right? But I love Facebook. So I'm Ashley Shackelford on Facebook. Just add me um, or follow me, and then that way you can see my posts. Um, I'm nowhere near, like, friend capacity. So, like, honestly, I could take on a whole bunch of friends. I just got, like, 200 friend requests in the last couple of days anyway. So, like, honestly, I know you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been really intense, but it's been great. Well, thank you for being on the show and continued success, and I'm a – Keep my eye on you to see what else you have up next. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shanice, and good luck with everything with your endeavors, and I hope you have a great night, okay? Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. So thank you to my guest tonight, Ashley Shackleford. I definitely want to hear your feedback. Tweet me, post on my Facebook. I want to hear your thoughts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to join our fan page on Facebook at facebook.com slash Shanice Lewis Show. I've been your host this evening, Shanice Lewis. Thank you for tuning in and supporting. Until next time, keep thriving in your curves and be blessed.